sitting down now. Just, just exactly. regular. What's it going down? <laughs> just a regular day. Let's kill this. All right. You rolling in there, uh, Rob? All righty. Okay, here we go. In five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to another episode of Box Talk. Got an amazing lineup today for you. I want uh, I want them to introduce themselves because they're they're worthy of their own introduction. That one that I could not uh, outdo. Starting to my left is an alumni here at Beverly Hills High School um, that won her entry into Studio B right here, Beverly Hills. Uh, let's start off with uh, with Stephanie. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Stephanie Samuels. I am the director and founder of Copline, which is a international hotline for police officers manned by retired police officers all over the United States and Canada. And when I went to Beverly, interestingly enough, we had a, uh, we had a teen line that, uh, that started when I was 14. Uh, I was part of the peer counseling team, and they had asked whether or not there are any teens that might be interested in working and answering phones for other teens. So I began back then, and the lines actually went live when I was 16, so that is going to be we're celebrating our 40th year for what is now known as Teen Line Care. So as I continued, I became a psychotherapist. Um, and uh, So it all started here. It did. It did. Wow. So, Never say that high school doesn't send you in the direction you're supposed to go. Absolutely. At least it attempts to, right? Yes. Or, or attempt, it, also, it also sends you in a direction sometimes that you shouldn't go. It's all learning. Yeah. It's all learning. <laughs> Sometimes you fall on your face, which the key is to get up and keep moving. Right. Well, you did an amazing job. I don't know the story, but you've landed a, a, literally an international figure to help with the cause. I think, I think that in itself, this moment is, uh, is to be celebrated, to be actually in the same presence as somebody who's so... Look, if it was just the Simpsons, that'd be enough. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but he's he's the real deal. He he absolutely is, and so humble and so so amazing in his portrayal of what uh, what he does, and has never lost sight of of the men and women that uh, that actually wear that badge. But what a wonderful wonderful spokesperson for us. We couldn't be more honored to. Could you to introduce have yourself? My head's not going to be able to float out of this room now. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, this is Joe Montaigne, who is not in law for enforcement, but I've played plenty of them on television and film <laughs> and stage and everywhere else. Uh, well, thank you for those. Thank you for those comments. But um, and Fat Tony too. There's somebody from the other side of the law. Speaking of the Simpsons, have been doing that for Fat thirty Tony. years. And you stole that from your grandfather, right? Actually, my uncle. Oh, your my uncle. uncle Willie. I have an uncle Willie who literally talked like this. <laughs> so. Uh, I don't get mad, I get stabby. I know, that's, that's, that's when I can tap into Fat Tony when I have to. I just think I'm my Uncle Willie. But anyway, but, um, but I, as I showed you earlier, I think I think earlier we showed you a little piece of video footage of me, I think at 10 years old, doing a little bit on the, the, the 
on the Ralph Edwards, This Is Your Life. It's a long story as to why I was on that show. But at 10 years old, they asked, you know, Ralph Edwards asked, what do you want to be when you grow up, Joey? And I go, I want to be a policeman. So uh, there, there's visual, you know, documented proof of me wanting to be in law enforcement at 10 years old. But anyway, I'm happy to be here and happy to be uh, supporting, which, which is uh, just a wonderful thing that you're, you're doing here with, uh, with, with what we're going to be talking about, about Copline and, 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 and the things that uh, what this is all about. Well, we're glad to have you, Joe. And I'm passing stories. on to a real, uh, one of the real guys here. <laughs> yeah, I'm Jim Alvarez, retired from the LAPD as a police captain, did 30 years, and uh, I'm blessed. I'm blessed to be here. I started off with the Sheriff's Department, did two years, got tired of the custody thing, so I came over to the L.A. side. And uh, I saw this on the rotator page when I retired. Cop line needed retired officers to help out on the line, hotline. And the two words that st stood out were confidential and anonymous because I knew with the stigma that officers have attached to them about not coming forward and talking about what they're feeling. I know we have brother and sister officers across the nation that don't have anybody to turn to. So this was a no-brainer for me. And I called her up right away and says, I would like to be a part of this. So we're glad to be here. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I really wasn't introduced to the suicide rate of not only police officers, but firemen. You know, people, oh, right. and pe people but it, right now, it's really the big focus is on, fire, I mean, on policemen, especially in New York City. Was nine in one year in one of the ten. departments? Is it ten now? It's ten. It's ten. Um, and you you wonder what what is the root cause that would allow such a high percentage of such a you know it's really an esteemed profession, you know, uh, in the eyes of the community. Sure. They're, they're, you would I only knew you know a dentist because they inflict so much pain that they're they're <laughs> they're, they're, they're known to. Uh, you know, commit suicide. They have a high for for a profession. They have a high rate of suicide. Sure. And that makes sense to me. But I still can't make sense of police officers. What what do you what do you think that it what what attributes to that? Uh, when you say make sense of it, you know yeah. what you're trying to do is make sense of the senseless, which is always difficult, particularly with a suicide, no matter what the vocation is. Um, but what what we do find is that it's not the the rookies that are dying by suicide it's those officers that typically have you know at least 15 years on the job um, and a lot of times people have no idea there seems to be um, issues with relationship problems what we are finding is that there's cumulative effects so you know one of the one of the whole purposes for cop line and it not being a quote-unquote suicide hotline is what we know is that if we can deal with the underlying psychosocial stressors that these law enforcement officers and their families go through on a daily basis, and they have a safe place that is confidential, that they are not afraid that their phones are gonna be pinged, somebody's coming to their house or what have you, that they can deal with what's going on, that we should be able to impact the suicide rate itself. And you know, there had been a study done many years ago with NYPD um, by a woman by the name of Dr. Ivanoff, and what she had found was relationships was the number one reason for officers to die by their own hands, um, and that job stress was at the bottom. So I wondered, because when you look at research, you wonder whether or not, if they weren't in that job, that they would have had the relationship problems, and I don't think that that's what it is, but this is really a population that they want to protect their loved ones. They don't want to go home and talk about the evils that they have seen and the decisions that they've made. And so they, they typically try and reconnect at home and keep the other 
real negative stuff to themselves. They don't want their spouses to worry. And there's only so much that you can keep just shoving down and shoving down and shoving down until, you know, it's, it's, it, the dam's going to She gonna, said, so one was, one was relationship and the other one was jobs. That's what she concluded? Number one was relationship. The bottom was job stress. Oh, I see. So it was interesting looking at that dichotomy and then saying, okay, but if we really kind of went into this, would we find that the relationship issue, that was the number one reason, really stemmed from the vocational stuff? Sure. That yeah, I mean, just being, like I said, playing a pretend person here for 15 seasons, we, we did the show Criminal Minds, which at times was very kind of a show, obviously the gruesome aspects mm -hmm. of what can happen, what people can do to each other, mm -hmm. especially people with a criminal mind. And I would be often asked, you know, constantly asked, though, especially over all the years I've been doing the show, you know, in interviews, they would say, doesn't it bother you? Doesn't it freak you out? Isn't it creepy to be that show? Because I can't watch, they'll say, oh, I, I watch it, I, I tape it and watch it in the morning, or I cover my eyes when the bad parts come. Doesn't it bother you? And I started to think about that, and, I, and, I, and my answer has always been no. It doesn't bother me, because I know that what I'm doing is, is it's, it's a reflection of what really does happen, and it's, it's the, it's the, fictional version of, of often true stories. But what I say is, it's given me incredible sympathy and simpatico for the people who really do that job. So and it makes, in a way, in, in some way makes me understand why, just what you're ta talking about, why this is an issue. Because I think to myself, you know, when we're shooting a scene as gruesome as it can be, and as, as, as emotionally, how much emotion or terror or whatever, all the aspects of, of a person who does this job for a living. When, when they say cut on the soundstage, all of a sudden, you know, everybody goes, oh, let's take a break. And the guy who just has his, an ax in his head gets up and gets a sandwich. <laughs> That's not what happens in real life. And so you, when you start comparing that to what the, you know, so here's somebody worrying about me, Joe Montaigne, the actor, like, oh, isn't it bother you to do that show? And I think, oh, no, <laughs> but let's go, why don't you go talk to those people that have to do that for real and then go home at night and try to be, and then have their, their kid come up running up to them and say, hey, daddy, you know, I want to do this and I want to do that. And they wonder why maybe, maybe uh, daddy or mommy is, is a little on edge or a little freaked out. And so because of that, it's given me tremendous sympathy and tremendous respect for our men and women in all, whatever the uniform may be, whether it's cops, firemen, military, but in this particular instance, they're talking about the police. And especially nowadays with all the scrutiny and all, everything else, it's like they're on top of, the microscope has been even expanded to, to every, everything they do, everything they say, everything is examined, and, you know. And yes, it, and it, and it, that's a good thing, but the stress it must create is just, it's, un, it's unbelievable. It reminds me of somebody going into battle, you know, sending them to Desert Storm or sending sure. them to Vietnam, and they, they do the job, and they, they do exactly what they were sent to do, but there's no relief on the mental side of it, there's no relief in, in the in the and just the, the the humanity that somebody needs an outlet like they should be on for three months and off for three months type of thing because sure. it's just it's just they're not a school teacher. Do you know what I mean? The yeah. the, the even a school teacher is off for three months. But <laughs> the the idea is it's it's there's no balance. In 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 I think the the exposure to those type of inhuman kind of effects have a wearing uh, effect on anybody, unless you reach a real early conclusion in life that you don't carry stuff. 
you know, to be able to release stuff. Oh, I, yeah. I, I, I have this, I was talking to, I was talking to, to, to uh, Jim earlier about what, one of the dialogues I have in class. It's, it's to help students either get off drugs or get their mind clear of it's only high school, don't, don't take it so seriously type of thing. And it's, it, the, the, the conversation goes like this. And how I explained it to, uh, to, to Joe was, or Jim was, uh, all schools should initiate a class on consciousness, starting in nursery school. The whole concept of consciousness, that this is what consciousness is. And we should graduate each year to a, a better understanding of what consciousness is. We're born into the world, these infinite beings. For seven years, we're living in this world of wonder right here, right now. And during that time, we collect all these experiences. Those experiences are put on a hard drive over here to be used for day-to-day -day operations and to add to them. Right around seven years old, you get a knock on the door. That hard drive's now accumulated enough information that it's become this little alien intelligence. And it says, hey, Joe, I got this. Take a back seat. I'm going to drive your ship. I got all the answers to everything. I'm going to tell you when to pull that blanket over your head. I'm going to tell you when to be scared, when to be happy. I'm going to have you label. All the labels will be pre-labeled. I'm going to say, hey, don't let that mofo get away with that. Go kick his ass, Joe. And it's useful, and it's completely necessary. But that's only connected to a hard drive. It's not connected to your breath. And that you have to realize that's the most valuable piece of gear you'll ever have. But it's not you. It's not the infinite being. And that if you cross-reference everything that comes through with the infinite being and take the driver's seat and say, thank you, that's an amazing computation, nice, but it doesn't apply to this moment. I'm not going to run that guy off the road because maybe he's having a bad day. <laughs> right? But the, the idea is, you know how you live a nightmare? A nightmare is when you're all into the dream. And you have no, you have no, uh, you have no say in the outcome. Then there's a, that, that's a dream when you're all in. Then there's a lucid dream. We got one foot cocked in the door of consciousness. And in that dream, you become the hero and you actually, you now create the outcome, right? During daylight, that's when you're sleeping, during daylight, if you're all into the hard drive and you allow that voice that talks to you 24 seven, the idea that you're running my ship, you live the nightmare during the day. But if you put one foot in consciousness, you change that. Just the recognition that the hard drive isn't you, but the hard drive is this amazing instrument that's going to reference stuff, but it's not you. You is only here in the present moment. If you don't recognize that, then you live the nightmare during the daylight. There's, a, you know, there's an aspect of that. And when um, I tried to bring, the, 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 for as many years I was doing Criminal Minds, I tried to bring, I talked to the producers about it and the writers about it, wanting to bring humor into the characters and moments whenever possible, and sometimes in, in very macabre situations. And where, I, and where I partly got that from, and, you, and Jim, could, you could probably relate to this, I was doing a movie called Homicide in Baltimore years ago. And so in order to get us, a, as part of the research, they had to sit down with two Baltimore hardcore homicide cops, myself and William H. Macy, who played my partner in the movie. So these guys came in, and I'll never forget it. We're sitting in the room, they said, these are the two real homicide guys. They want to talk to you, Joe and Bill to kind of give you, in the next hour or so, maybe a 
snap thing of what it's like to be homesick. So I noticed they had a big book with them. <laughs> and they laid it down. They go, okay, boys, you want to know what it's like to be a homicide cop? Okay, we thought we'd bring you some visual aids. <laughs> and they started flipping those pages. <coughs> now, I saw it on Bill's face. I saw the blood drain out of Bill's <laughs> face yeah. as they were showing us some of the most horrific kind of photos. This, this was like that, that, that murder mm-hmm. book, the thing that was, he's showing us, oh, yeah. you know, stills that the coroner faces basically of took. Death. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and done in the most... Extreme things like you think to yourself, this is really people do these things to each other, and like, and these guys are looking at us, just kind of basically seeing what the reaction is going to be. Now I'll never forget Bill saying, he he started to lose a little bit. He's going, you know, I got a custom fitting in about ten minutes. I'm going to have to go. So he goes, and I realized, and I knew what was going on. I'm saying, no, no, I'm I'm in. I'm in, boys. And they're looking at me like, what you going to go? I go, no, 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 I'm there. I get it. And so then we so we finished the book. And then they start. Then we start talking about. Okay, I get it. I see what you have to deal with every day. And then, and but as they were showing some of the pictures, they would actually make, start to make a little joke about some of it. Like, oh yeah, this guy doesn't even look a little bit like the Pillsbury Doughboy because, you know, in reality he had been sit, yeah, had been sitting out there for months and is bloated and, and exactly right. That that he says if we didn't laugh, find <coughs> some kind of humor in that, we might go home and take that pistol and put it to our own heads and blow our heads off. He says, that is the, just yeah. what you said. Maybe you could Yeah, you mentioned exposure and you mentioned horrific. So we can never forget, the uh, obviously, what our officers are dealing with today. Uh, obviously, they deal with shift work and frequent shift changes, uh, modified deployments on holidays and, and uh, special events that occur. They are pulled in multiple directions, obviously. There's uh, forced overtime for shortages in manpower, but they're responding to the most horrific incidents today in modern day history, which is the mass shootings. So they're taking all that in. And we have to remember officers from day one are being groomed to be the saviors of society, right? They're, how dare a peacekeeper show any weakness? Because if they show weakness in the field, we know what's going to happen. Their adversaries are going to use aggression against them, and that's going to be a threat to themselves, their partner, and our community members out there. So these officers, here's into the stigma, they're keeping this inside. It goes into their personal lives, and they're not going to talk about the, those photos on the dinner table with the family because you just can't go there. So everything's staying inside. There's no outlet, which is why Copline exists today because we are out there, retired officers, willing to take that phone call because sometimes they don't have anybody to turn to, and that's the, the reason we're here. I'm going to piggyback on that because um, it's not all retired officers that can take these calls. So the, the vetting process is pretty, pretty tight, and what we have found, so we've, we've gone through seven, uh, seven classes. We've only had three, of, three classes where everybody has successfully completed it. A lot of that has to do with not the fact that we're these you know, tough-ass people that are, that are kind of jamming them up. The role plays get more and more difficult. They get more and more significant. And though these people are more than qualified to, to answer these lines, due to their their CV and what they've experienced, what they're struggling with is the emotional connection that you have to have. It's really understanding what empathy is, not sympathy, but empathy, and being able to get in this hole with your, your fellow officer and being able to sit there with them. And that requires you to, to feel pain. It requires you to be real. And it is probably one of the most daunting tasks to ask somebody that has completed their career to actually go back in that hole and now sometimes do what they have not done in their entire careers, and that is to feel. So 
you know, I, I, I think sometimes when people, okay, you know, this is great, they're retired officers, they understand, they're not just retired officers that understand, they have been vetted and they have been put through hell. And we look at their own critical incidents, our role plays are typically have to do with stuff other officers have been involved in. Um, it's myself and a, another, uh, another uh, clinician, uh, police psychologist, uh, Dr. Jay Magdaman, who is with LAPD that comes up with a lot of these role plays, mm -hmm. and I know um, our volunteers like Jim have also done that. So they are, they're the real deal. They're not just stuff that, that you know, people make up. They're what we have experienced as clinicians um, working with law enforcement, what our officers have seen. And so when somebody does call those lines and when people have wanted to volunteer and they're like, I've been through all of this stuff and, you know, I'm great. I was a hostage negotiator. I did this and that. And I have no doubt they're incredible. But the question is, can you feel? Are you prepared to go into a world that a lot of times you have absolutely avoided at all costs? And that's really why we've only been able to complete three full classes of, of individuals without people, um, what we call self-excluding, finally saying, you know, I thought I was ready, but I realize now I'm, I'm just not. Mm -hmm. So, When you say classes, what's, what a class constitutes someone who's going to be on the other end of the phone? Correct. So that, uh, so that there's a, a vetting process. So they fill out a, um, a questionnaire, which mm -hmm. goes to me. I then make the phone call. I vet them on the lines, and then we invite them to where the next training is going to be. So our next one's going to be in Texas, because don't forget, we're international, so it's not always convenient. Right. But I have found that cops are more than happy to travel. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it got less them because it's at their own expense. We pay for the training, but they cover all of their expenses otherwise. So that's also difficult, but that's not a guarantee that you're going to end up answering the lines. Right. So it's 40 hours. I mean, it is 40 full hours from morning into the night of doing, you know, learning as well as a lot, a lot, a lot of role plays, which is just grueling. One of the things that uh, I noticed after three decades in law enforcement, I've been to my share of schools and the team teaching with Stephanie and Dr. J is outstanding. They cover so many topics that are good for retired officers now to put on that new hat and start saying, okay, I got to listen to those key words that they're teaching me in, and that's where they perform on the lines. Yeah, it's, it's, it's no doubt a special learning that, you know, you got to have the right kind of temperament and the right sure. kind of uh, persona in the, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, it's not easy to, I mean, you you could spot someone who's useful, right? And you can spot somebody who's who's a detriment, sure. right? It's uh, it's a fine it's a really fine uh, line. The, the most difficult thing is so that um, so that we teach active listening skills. So what have cops been doing their entire careers? Giving advice. Right. So when when we have the first questionnaire, they're like, "I'm really good at giving advice," and I'm like. <laughs> Awesome! This is going to be hell for you. <laughs> it's just like you look at this and you think we 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 got a higher mountain than you think, because this is absolutely not about giving advice. Because to be non-judgmental, it's not about giving advice. So it's it's about understanding active listening skills and that toolbox, which very few of these guys, these guys have that toolbox so it's really learning that you know this is a screwdriver it's basic there's a phillips head there's a flathead we're going to start with that walk me through if i phoned the hotline and i was a i was an officer who was just i'm going to let at his at his, at his at his limit and i'm just i'm going to talk to you and i don't know who you are but you answered the phone and i'm 
I, yeah, I'm at I'm at my my limit. I'll tell you why officers call us, and then I'll tell you who calls us. So, they call us for a variety of reasons. It could be marriage problems, anger management, depression, uh, peer pressure, um, them versus us mentality. Not only society towards the cops, but also management. That's their perception now. Um, PTSD symptoms. A lot of our folks deployed in the field have prior military experience, so they've been treated for PTSD whenever severed their uh, service time. So we have that as well, up to thoughts of suicide. So we have a gamut of what we're going to be dealing with. And the folks that call in, officers of all ages from various ranks, we could have a rookie officer who just was not prepared for the graphic violence that they're dealing with daily. The stress, the trauma, they can't handle that. <clears throat> so they want to reach out to a retired officer and try and look, look at some coping skills or some tools that they can get in their belt as they start their career in law enforcement. We, we've had some guys that 19 and a half years on the job, six months away from securing their pension, but because of some error in judgment, civil or criminal case, their reputation, their career, mm -hmm. and their pension's at risk. So their world is caving in right now, and they're at the end, so we have to deal with that as well. And a lot of times we get some retired folks that are just lonely and depressed. Their social network is gone. No more uh, anniversaries or functions due to distance, traveling, finances, health problems. And, and all, just your, need all your buddies have died on the way. Exactly. Yeah. So we get the full range of people calling Wow, that's a gamut. And, of course, family members, which is a great conduit for Copline to help out folks that don't have any way to go when they're dealing with the loved one. I could give you another example, too, of a situation where I, I, I was privy to be part of that opened my eyes to about what kinds of things you have to go through and, and the ramifications of it. I, I, uh, I've spent, because of the being on the show Criminal, uh, Criminal Minds, which deals with the FBI, I, I was able to go to Quantico numerous times wow. and actually spend time there. And then I do another show on the Outdoor Channel that also gave me an opportunity to go again. So I spent a good amount of time at Quantico. And one of the times there they said, we want to run you through our simulator course because it's like the mm -hmm. most... You know, a lot of police departments have them, sure. a lot of organizations have them. But the one at the FBI is like the, the platinum one. <laughs> this is the one that, I don't know how, how much this thing costs them, but it's like unbelievable <laughs> because it's totally interactive. You go in there and it will react instantly to what decisions you make and things you mm -hmm. say. They can almost instantly run the computer and change things. So he says, here, here's the situation. They put me in the room and I've got the fake, you know, the gun that shoots a laser. Mm -hmm. And he says, here's the deal. This, there's this car. You're going to stop this car. This guy's going to jump out of the car. You deal with it. You know, you <laughs> think he might be something squirrely about this guy. That's all I tell him. So go, okay, well, now the movie starts. Now the car's going. And I'm standing there going, okay. <laughs> so, so now the car stops, squeals to a stop. The guy jumps out of the car. Now instantly the guy starts coming toward me, and he's, and he's, he's dressed like a normal guy. Everything's fine. He's saying, is there something wrong, officers? Is there something I should, is there, you know, whatever he says? And I'm like, yes. Um, and I'm trying to think all along what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm saying, yeah, Doing could you go. just Doing please? Yeah. Just, and I've got my gun out. And I said, it's could like, you please fine. put your hands yeah. above me? So now he starts talking to me, and the guy who's running the movie is like, adjusting as to what I'm saying. So now he says, oh, listen. He says, I'm a police officer myself. I'm going to show you my, my, my wallet. It's right here. Now he's got his hands like above his, you know, right alongside his head here. He says, I'm going to reach down and show you my wallet. 
And I'm saying, now, wait a minute, just keep your hands up now. I said, and, and he says, no, no, no. And he, no, he's reacting to what I'm saying. He's saying, no, I'm just going to show you my wallet. It's and he's slowly bringing his hands down, very slowly. And I have the gun out, and I'm pointing the gun at him. He says, I'm going to show you the gun. And remember, the, the, the wallet, it's right here. It's right here. Okay, please, don't go crazy. Don't shoot. I'm just, it's right. And he's pointing, he's pointing, and he's reaching. He's closer, closer. He gets to his belt. And I'm thinking, and I'm I'm shaking now. And this is a movie, and I'm, I'm sweating. I'm shaking, I'm, and I'm saying whatever I'm saying. I'm saying, okay, don't be careful, okay. And now he goes, up here, be careful. Don't go crazy. Here it is. It's my wallet. I'm an officer. I'm going to show you my credentials. All of a sudden, he, quickly, I see his hand go into his belt. As his hand is coming out, I see, oh, my God, it's a gun. So I'm like, boom, 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 boom. And, of course, he put, puts it out, boom, 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 boom. Now, of course, everything goes crazy. The lights come out of the building. <laughs> the lights are flashing. Things are going. They, they stop the film. And I go, oh, my God, what happened? And they said, well, uh, you shot three times. You, you missed twice. You hit him once. You wounded him. But he got his bullet off, and you're dead. He got you. Wow. And I said, well. And I was totally shocked. Mm. I said, what was I supposed to do? I mean, the guy, and then they explained to me. They said, we've worked it out scientifically. He knew he was going to shoot you. He had the gun. He knew what he was going to do. So when his hands reached a certain, and they explained it to me, at the certain distance between his hands and his belt line, the amount of time for him to have made the decision, I'm now going to pull the gun and shoot, that is that much quicker than you going, oh, my God, that mm. is a gun. Even though it's already aimed at him, I'm going to shoot him before he shoots me. It's too late. Mm -hmm. So I said, what should I have done? And they said, the second he dropped his hands below his shoulders when you told him to keep him up, you were justified to shoot him. And I said, and then instantly I realized all those incidents where they say, oh my God, that cop shot that kid because he hit, and all mm -hmm. it was was a phone, a cell phone, or it was this, or it was right. that. And I brought that up. I said, so you mean, I said, so if, it made me realize every person out there should have to go through the same simulator thing. So before you make a snap judgment about, well, why did they do that? It was a toy gun, or it was just a, you know, they were coming at him and the thing wasn't really loaded, or it was like, it made me realize at that, the difference between a fraction of an instant was the difference between me being dead or me not being dead, and it made me appreciate. Now, if I'm doing it for a movie, and I'm breaking out in a sweat, I'm getting a headache, and I'm thinking, what if the guy who's really had to do this? And so it all ties in just why, you know, that's, this is what your daily job is, and you have to deal with those kind of decisions right. and then be yeah. punished for it when, not because you made a mistake even. You could have made, you made, might have made the correct move, but the, the, what it's going to come out is, oh, they shot this guy, and, mm -hmm. and all it was was, uh, you know, a, a wallet. But, sure. yeah. but but if he maybe if it would have been a gun, it would have been a whole different scenario. Oh, policeman was killed today. Right. You know, right. too right. bad he didn't get his shot off first. Sure. Yeah. The kids might have to be treated for a little PS, uh, PTSD. PTSD. Yeah. Uh, he was only acting. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Some symptoms they, there, right? They do. I mean, they, they, you have one one hundredth of a second to make a decision that attorneys will take five years. To, right. to look over, right. and you will be tried in the media before you will ever get into a courtroom. And that people don't realize that law enforcement officers have a gag, a gag order on them. They cannot talk to the media. So, the, you know, people are always saying, oh, why doesn't the cop come forward? He's got to be guilty. 
no, he's not allowed to talk to the media. So that's... Our responsibilities uh, and pretty overwhelming for some of our officers out there. And those that are dealing with problems that came to the job that we talked about earlier, they're keeping that all inside and all the stress is just mounting on top of them. <clears throat> and uh, it takes a lot of courage to put on the vest and the uniform for officers to go in the field. I think, you, I think Joe hit a big, a big thing when he, when he spoke about the idea of introducing, you know, some comedic relief. Some, I mean, you can do that with your buddies, but imagine how that all disappears. You got to be a Boy Scout after that, or a Girl Scout. You know what I mean? After that, you know, most of the time you're in the public view, and all yeah. that has to. Imagine how how they have to bite their tongue in the middle of like some public thing that they got to explain. Oh, yeah. Well, you have and to maintain that professional. That's models. what yeah, I mean. Right. That's right. That, that's. I could just see myself. That would never last. That last two days. It's, 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 it's gallows it, humor. I mean, yeah, it's that's what gets me. That's that what gets them. me out of everything. Do you know where the term gallo gallo laughter comes from? No. Gallo laughter <laughs> is when it came. It came from medieval time. As they were being walked with the, you know, to meet the executioner, that's when they were laughing because they were so stressed that, out. That, that, that and that's called sense. gallo laughter in the mm -hmm. gallows as they were making their way to their execution. Mm -hmm. Isn't that amazing? Mm. So, so you talk about laughing, right? They're trying to laugh it off too, but you can't do that if you're uh, if you're right. if you're an officer. Right? I, I will tell you one thing that internationally, no officer will ever laugh about, joke about, and there's no gallows humor ever, which makes it even more difficult. Is the death of a child? It is truly right. taboo, no matter what country you are in, that you will never hear anybody uh, joke about that. And, you know, you had mentioned about what they come on the job with, and I, I was talking to, to Joe before, and one of the things, you know, I, I, when I lecture uh, and I train, actually, and I train for cop line, that some of the scenes from Criminal Minds is what I use because they have just done such an amazing, amazing job of dealing with some of the, the most difficult um, issues that law enforcement has before they ever get on the job, let alone the relationship issues and that stuff that you guys have truly just done brilliantly, um, and PTSD. But um, when, when Morgan. Yeah, had, Shamar yeah, Moore, yep. uh, we'll check. He, you know, they, we, we did this whole storyline and, and it was nice because they, 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 they revisited it, in fact. So in other words, it wasn't yes. just a one-shot deal. They, they showed it. And I thought I thought it was it was smart of them to pick the character that Shamar Moore played of Morgan because first of all Shamar is one of the most you know macho men on the planet Earth and beyond. Uh, absolutely. So which goes to show that this is not a situation that just happens to like the the weak ones or the the, the ones that can be easily victimized. Right. He was dealing with the, the child sexual abuse prior to the time that he had gone on the job right. and just brilliantly done and you know. When you look at statistics, it's one out of three females are molested, one out of seven males, and yet in law enforcement, we find those numbers can be halved. And having it done the way that you guys did it, and and with um, with Morgan playing that character. Yeah, well, which is great, is it because you saw within those episodes, he would counsel then other, yes. you know, men that had been through it, and basically for him then to be to to, to make those that, that admission and to be able to mm -hmm. say, look, hey, this happened to me. You have nothing to be embarrassed about or you know, be, being afraid to talk about it. This is something you, you're gonna have to deal with, but it's okay, We're, you can do it. Right, and, and the way that you guys as characters handled it, you didn't shun him, there was no sense of embarrassment, and that was another key, because people won't talk about it, because they're afraid, you know, my own is going to now 
you know, kind of treat me differently or shun me. And, you know, looking at that last scene when, you know, it was a Beaumontia, I think that was his name, was, was being taken and you guys were behind the, the cage and, and just watching your faces truly embrace him. And, you know, and, and for the character talked about how he had wished that he had come forward with the statue of limitations um, being up, but it's, you know, that, that one kid now will bring it into that statue of limitations. And the numbers are, are astonishing if I said to you to guess how many males, um, how many different victims a male has that molest outside the family. You would, you, I don't think you'd get with inside of a hundred of that number. Hmm because the answer is 358 different Whoa. victims. Whoa. So when, when you were portraying that character, that episode, I'm sure, had an incredible effect on so many people that it really was able to make a huge difference, as do you. Oh yeah, no, it's, it's, it's always rewarding when I, you know, because I'll get emails, just uh, random emails that'll go to a website that'll basically say, I just got one about a week ago from a young girl, just basically saying, I'm, I, I'm writing to your, website because I don't know how else to reach maybe one of you people that are connected with this show but I just want to let you know that by watching your show has literally saved my life because you know there were I was in a, an abusive relationship and, mm. and all of a sudden it came to a head and I was in a situation and, and I was able to recall some of the things that you did on the show that to, for, to save me from the situation and to, to see that okay well it's nice to know that maybe you know from something that you look at as, as you know entertainment in some sort it has it a positive home. effect sure. hits home yeah, and sure. actually makes a difference and that's 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 just that's great you mentioned embarrassment so the the stigma that's connected to law enforcement where officers do not want to release that information because law enforcement officers are driven individuals they would like to go work gangs narcotics vice homicide <laughs> motors SWAT metro adrenaline air <laughs> and if something gets out in the open to their agency about their personal lives, their personal problems, they feel that their career is tainted and or maybe they could lead to losing their, their career in law enforcement. So the stigma is real and the fear is real for our officers across the board, nationwide, internationally, and that's why they hold and maintain everything inside. It's crucial for our officers to have some type of established support system, whether it's a family member, a friend, someone on the job, off the job, somebody that they can release that pressure event to and talk about the cop line provides it and when they don't and uh, like I said it covers the full gamut of, of folks that are out there we have uh, we've gotten calls uh, you know most people because you know we're in California now and you know I'm back east is most people don't realize that so in the Midwest so on Monday you've got officers who were working at 7-eleven on Tuesday they now have a gun badge and patch they can the patrol point, yeah. areas the size of Delaware single patrol no backup no protection $12 an hour and they don't have to go through the police academy for 12 oh, months yeah. wow. and that's what we're looking at so you know I, sometimes I think we become jaded one of the nice things about being national than international is really kind of looking at this nation sure. and going oh my god like we you know LA and and California is target rich with some of these things you know East Coast or what have you but once you start getting into the Midwest these services just aren't there so it's not unusual for us to get a call from somebody who, you know, we've got to worry about cell service, but is patrolling and is scared and just wants mm, somebody yeah. on the other end because they're in the middle of nowhere right. to talk to. And they're not trained. I mean, and that is insane to me that that is still done. Yeah. Wow. 
that's uh, you know, it's it's it takes a village, right? And it's yeah, kind sure. of it's 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 uh, the missing components that make up the difference when the, you know when things starts to you know when it, when it when a when a situation starts to fall apart, mm -hmm. it's usually the uh, the, the, the problem that usually creates any relationship problem is is uh, always culminates in an explosion, right? You know, when you have in anybody, it could be your girlfriend, your wife, your coworker. Whenever there's a problem, the problem is because there's a lack of communication. That's it's because someone's somebody's needs aren't being met, or someone's getting stepped on, or some something. And if you love what your situation you're in, you're gonna you're gonna make noise, right? That's why fighting's good. Fighting isn't always a bad thing because a fighting a fight is the end of the real you know beginning to get what you're missing or get something corrected, put something back into putting it back into into perspective. You know, a partner who stops fighting is a divorce, right? I'm not talking to you anymore. So if you're not talking, the fight is on. And it's not going to get any better because I'm over. I'm done with it. So the, the the beginning of getting back to neutral is always a conversation. You know, it's in a and a, a conversation in this state of mind is a, is you know you know you're at your wits end. If somebody's going and they're a cop and they're calling a stranger, you know you're you're at you're you're yeah. that's you know, yeah. The fight could end deadly for you know one of the participants, yeah. which is not a good thing. And it's right. not a stranger; it's a fellow officer, and they know that calling that is going to be a retired officer. So there's some bond already. Oh, there is. And once, oh yeah, and once they yeah. start asking a couple questions <laughs> and they vet the listener <laughs> on the phone, then it's on. They can tell you your real name. Sometimes they can keep their names bogus, obviously yeah. anonymous. But they let you know everything about their problems, and right. they just open up. What is the? I'm just curious myself. What what is like uh, average? How many do you get in like in a, in a given day or on a? Or on a uh, so um, we average anywhere between about 120 something to 160 calls a month. A month, okay. So, and part of that is. Um, is the need to be able to help spread the word and, and with your generosity and doing all that you've done for us today and that, that we'll be able to do that. Podcasts, um, public service announcements, is to be able to, to spread the word. Mm -hmm. And that's, and we know, uh, we know that the lines are being utilized. So there's uh, two states in particular, which is Texas and California, that we've had our most amount of publicity. Those are our two highest calling states. Um, a news network had picked us up. They did a, um, a hometown uh, suicide prevention. Uh, Police emergency. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, on uh, on one of their their shows, and they vetted they vetted the hotline themselves. They actually called the the hotline, which we didn't know, mm -hmm. and uh, and we saw a huge uptick from the East Coast. So our number one calling state has actually been New York, which we are grateful truly grateful wow. that that's uh, that that's there so we know once the word spreads so it's always been a fine balance we need to have enough retired police officers manning those sure. lines right. we need to be able to get the word out because we need to to truly serve this population and again these guys have always had the, the heavy lift and I'm going to be with you I have always had the light lift it's you know I I don't get to play one on TV, but I am acutely aware that I am quite safe in my office in New Jersey. So, well, it's uh, it's it's kind of 
interesting because you're talking about retired cops also fall into this category. What a better what a better resource to keep you active. You know, sure. imagine all the retired yeah. cops that need this as their own lifeline to be able yeah. to, you know, that reciprocity and that helping helping their yeah you give back their, to their the badge. That, yeah. yeah, absolutely, oh, absolutely. It's, it's a great huge. outlet. Yeah. We do our push in two directions to help officers active retired family members and to get those guys on board to be an active listener right because the satisfying part is knowing because we're never going to know if the employee the officer sought treatment if they recovered from it if they finished their careers out but we do know for those two minutes or two hours and we've had a few of the two hours that officer was not alone so they had somebody with them in that hole like stephanie mentioned and that's a retired cop trying to do what's right give back to the uniform give back to the badge Amazing, amazing. To avoid getting into one of those fights with my wife that you referred to, <laughs> I'm going to have to extract myself out of this podcast right now. All right, but but, uh, but no, but it's been a privilege to be here with all with the three of you and and uh, and to just be part of this whole thing. I mean, I, I I've been involved with the military quite a bit and. Uh, for the last 18 years or so, I've been hosting the National Memorial Day concert in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. with Gary Sakis and I have been doing that and, and made me think of this as well because just a few years ago, we incorporated with that concert um, a phone-in hotline. Oh, great. Because, you know, you talk yeah. about suicides in, in the military. Right. The, the numbers were up to something like 15 a day. You know, we're it's 22 a day. Yeah, no, it's up to that. Yeah. So they, they instituted a hotline uh, on the show, and that, that show is broadcast on PBS and all the military um, kind of outlets, TV outlets around the world, to the, you know, U.S. bases and stuff. And that's been very successful. So, great, so the point, great, your point yeah. being the same thing of just getting the word out there and hopefully to show what we're doing right now is getting it out there, that this, this cop line thing really does work. It's, a, it's an important thing. And so anybody who, if you know somebody who can use this, this information, tell them, or, you, know, you know, spread the word. And, and, and that's, you know, this is what, you know, we Thank should you. be doing. Thank Does you for being part of the solution. No, it's <laughs> my pleasure. Kidding, I, I, uh, I, I'm a, like I say, I have no problem distinguishing between what I do for a living, which is the pretend version of what guys like Jim do and men and women in uniform around, around the world, really. Uh, who, it's one thing to go get up in the morning and say, I'm going to go do my job, which I know in my case, it's like, oh, I'm going to go play pretend, and it's a job that like a lot of people, if, if, you, if you ask them what you want to do for a living, always, in fact, there's a saying that says the three best jobs in the world is to be like you're a rock and roll musician, to be a professional athlete, or to be an actor. But to being an actor was the best because you could play the other two, <laughs> you know. But, but another, it's another thing to get up in the morning and say, I'm going to go be this, whether it's the policeman, the fireman, the, the person in the military, but yet not knowing, will I come home safe at the end of the day, though? And that's 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 a bit different when you chose that as your vocation. So uh, I know I personally will never you know forget that, and and and, and it's so I'm I'm happy to whatever to to, to lend whatever support really to what that. you do. So thank you for what you do, and and uh, carry on, carry on. <laughs> well, that brings this episode of uh, Box Hot to a close. I want to thank uh, Jim. Uh, I want to thank Joe and Stephanie who brought this all together. Hot, uh, this is a hot topic, cop line. Um, do what you can, really it's a, it's one person makes a difference. We're all connected and anything you can do to promote this worthy cause is, 
is going to help this planet. Thank you. Until next time. So long. Great. Okay. Right. No, my pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Appreciate it. So, why don't you get home to your wife? Can I take a picture with you? Absolutely. You know, only because I got, you know, you know, Patty Laponius? Yeah, I get one quick signature from you. Patty Laponius. She was like the original. Oh, yes, yes. Yes. Anyway, this is our guest. The last person in here was. Should we hold this up? Oh, yeah. It was. Yeah, so you guys can do whichever. Here we go. Just to you personally? It's, 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 it's to us. Yeah, it's my book. But I do it. Anybody who gets into the studio. We had, who did? Who did, um, who's the guy who did the uh, Gremlins? Gremlins was, uh, his name is, uh, who did Gremlins? Uh, Joe Dante. Joe Dante. Oh, he was the last person to sign the book. Another Italian boy. Nice Italian boy. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get a uh, Well, you got a great a name. Podcast. Like, a name photo. like Romeo is such a good name. Oh, yeah. That's my dad. He made sure I had... Uh, Do you want us down or up? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take it with my camera, and I can send it to everybody, or I can take it with a bunch of cameras. Everybody right, can take pictures. Yeah, if you get to. Yeah, the light would be good here. This video. Oh, you're right. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay, here we go. Rodrigo, with this pointing. You did that the other day. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. My pleasure. Truly. Thank you. Amazing. Do you mind if I get a He's picture with you? Not at all. I'll take it with you. Thank you. You want a picture with Joe? Yeah. yeah.